Welcome to the Game Changers podcast, where we have clinical conversations that impact your pharmacy practice. For the next 35 minutes, Jeff Wall and ICU pharmacist Matt Trump discuss a new study that reviews the best strategy for septic shock. Don't forget to claim your CE after listening. As I mentioned today, we're going to talk about an ICU study that is uh, definitely making some noise in, in that particular uh, area of medicine. And to help me discuss this, I am very grateful for uh, one of my bosses, one of my intensivists here at Methodist Hospital, Dr. Matt Trump, for joining us. So, Matt, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being on. I appreciate that. As and, and again, Matt and I have been friends for a long time, and and uh, have have ridden the highs and lows of, of treating sepsis together. So so I appreciate his expertise talking about this. So we're going to talk today about a paper again that that seems to be making a lot of noise in in, in home care circles, talking about restrictive versus liberal fluid management for sepsis induced hypotension. Now this is a, a a subject that has really gone up and down over the years. Um, when I was uh, first coming out of school in the '90s, you know there was you know there wasn't any idea about blasting people with isotonic fluids it was you know the idea that you know you want to give them some fluid but not too much and and you know we, we didn't really fluid resuscitate people to the point we probably should have um, that was also the period of time where, where we had a lot of we used a lot of PA catheters and people again I remember when we dropped PA catheters and everybody who had septic shock and now we don't almost never do that um, and trying to trying to get you know levels to a certain uh, point and the wedge pressure and all that stuff and then in 2000 Manny Rivers published his classic goal directed therapy study that really set the stage for uh, aggressive fluid management, especially in the early uh, hours after septic shock has been diagnosed. And his study basically found that 20 to 30 mils per kilogram, an, an initial bolus of, of fluid, uh, improved outcomes, and uh, really became the, the standard of care in treating septic shock. And, you know, unfortunately, no one's ever been able to replicate that study. And, and there, despite several tries to do so, some have argued the reason why is because it's become so embedded, it's hard to design a study that doesn't have, uh, uh, you know, you, it's hard to get people into a study where, where uh, aggressive fluid management is the standard of care. So for a long, long time, you know, his study really was kind of the standard that we, we assessed a goal-directed therapy by. But then some things have changed. Um, several studies have, have come out that have basically not found that, that aggressive fluid therapy in, in retrospective studies is any better than, than, a, than a more uh, a measured approach to giving fluid. And with the weight of patients generally in, increasing in the last 20 or 30 years, since it's, it's a milligram per kilogram fluid load, we're finding ourselves giving more and more fluid to patients right out of the gate. I mean, uh, you have a patient who's 100 kilograms, when you're giving 30 mils per kilogram, it's that's three liters right out of the gate. And, uh, you know, 100 kilograms is not unusual in my patient population. In fact, that's probably on the low end. So, you know, that was a, became a real concern, I think, of, of clinicians in the ICU arena. And of course, the other big change that's happened just in the last uh, 10 years or five years or so is the switch from normal saline as the standard therapy to lactated ringers because we now have pretty good evidence in almost all disease states that require aggressive fluid hydration. The lactate ringers is better in that it decreases the risk of hyperchloremic acute kidney kidney injury. So as I've said before, you know, it, it, it pains me to say the surgeons were right all along, but the surgeons were right all along. So um, anyway, so what we're going to talk about um, is the Clover study. And the Clover study was done uh, by the ARDSnet group, which is the uh, the top pinnacle of, 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 uh, of clinicians who do work in the critical care arena. It is sponsored 
by NIH. And so, you know, again, these, these are studies that have the potential to really change how we, how we uh, treat sepsis and, and a wide variety of other critical care issues. They note in the study themselves that, you know, the, you know why do we give people a blast of fluid? And that's because it, we know that a lot of these patients, while they may be uh, a, a bit fluid overloaded peripherally in the intravascular space, they're usually depleted or have a functionally reduced intervascular volume uh, um, because of the dilation of arterioles and, and veins that causes the fluid to kind of leak out in, in, into the tissue. And so the yeah, patients may very well be intervascularly depleted. And so the thought was always, and, and again, again, this I think was what Manny Rivers was trying, trying to figure out with his study, was that giving fluids can, can actually improve uh, cardiac output as far as stroke volume and, and, and uh, other parameters, as well as improve macrovascular and microvascular perfusion. But it is not without its problems. It can create delusional coagulopathy, which I don't see a ton of, but I do see a ton of fluid overload and, and, and pulmonary edema and also edema in other organs as well. And so the thought has always been, well, we've, we've gotten, you know, people lots of fluids, we can't get their mean arterial pressure above 65, time to add vasopressic agents such as uh, norepinephrine or vasopressin, they're common use, commonly used in combination. Of course, they work by contracting arterioles and increasing cardiac output as well. They have their own risks, of course, tissue ischemia, increased cardiac workload, uh, tachyarrhythmias, which we see very commonly with these medications, et cetera, et cetera. But that's really been the standard. We've used that for a long, long time, you know, at least 10 years, probably more than that, in, in the treatment of, of, of septic shock. And, you know, the, the authors in this paper note that, you know, large volumes or a liberal fluid strategy is common practice, that recent randomized control trials have shown no difference in 90-day mortality uh, when comparing a restrictive approach to unguided resuscitation uh, or a liberal approach. And so the name of the study, crystalloid liberal or vasopressors, early resuscitation and sepsis is the name of the Clover study, basically, wanted to do a randomized control trial trial that, that took a look at a liberal fluid strategy where fluids were, were the main stay of early treatment to a fluid restricted strategy where actually early use of vasopressors was done first line in the first 24 hours of resuscitation. Their thought is that it would lead to a lower mortality before discharge home within 90 days compared to liberal fluid strategy. So as far as inclusion exclusion criteria, they actually had a fairly broad inclusion criteria, just adults with suspected or confirmed in, in infection, which again is, is broadly defined find you did not need to have, for example, positive blood cultures. Uh, you just had had to have basically the SERS criteria, as well as substance-induced hypotension with a stock blood pressure less than 100 um, after the administration of a liter of intravenous fluid. So everybody at baseline got a liter of fluid, and then they were uh, eligible to be included in the study. Key occlusion criteria included a lapse of more than four hours since the, since the meeting of the criteria for hypotension uh, that was refractory to the, to the fluid load, 1,000 uh, mils, and a lapse of more than 24 hours hours since presentation to the hospital and previous receipt of more than three liters of intravenous fluid during, during the episode. Um, they also couldn't be in the study if they had the presence of fluid overload or they had basically non-sepsis causes of, of, of shock, including severe volume depletion. They then randomized patients in a one-to-one ratio into this restrictive fluid strategy with early days of pressure use or liberal fluid strategy. And I'm actually going to take a minute and, and talk about each of these because I think this is going to be critical if we start using uh, the evidence from this study to, to uh, alter how we uh, treat sepsis in some patients. Um, this was this protocol that was then followed uh, for 24 hours. Uh, the restricted protocol uh, prioritized vasopressors as the primary treatment for sepsis-induced hypotension. And so they used uh, vasopressors much sooner than we would probably normally do so. Um, whereas, and then they would use rescue fluids, which sounds 
sounds kind of funny, uh, uh, for, for uh, pre-specified pre indications that suggested intravascular volume depletion, whereas the liberal protocol uh, started with a two-liter bolus of isotonic crystalloid, and then continued crystal bol uh, bol uh, boluses, crystalloid boluses, then followed by rescue vasopressors. I think very close to what we do in, in clinical practice now, where we give a fluid bolus, see how they do, give a fluid bolus, see how they do. And then finally, after two or three fluid, fluid boluses, if we can't get their map above 65, we go ahead and start vasopressors on them. Uh, is, uh, this, it was interesting how to do the study, as, as anyone knows, uh, doing our randomized control trials in the ICU is always uh, difficult. Uh, you know, you have a difficult time with, you know, making sure that patients are similar between groups. Uh, you have a difficult time getting consent because often the patient can't consent. And so it has to be a family member who's consenting and et cetera, et cetera. So it's sometimes very difficult to do these studies. And I think they did a, pr a pretty good job of, of figuring out what to do uh, in this study. They had a, a trial team of, of people who supported the protocol, who understood the protocol and answered questions and helped implement it. And then the actual clinical team, so the actual intensivists and, and the rest of the team who was actually following the patient and was in charge of their primary care. Um, and, and basically they had the protocol, they used, tried to use the protocol, but the clinical team could override the protocol instructions at will. And I think that was probably the only way they could get buy-in from clinicians. I think you'd have a very difficult time uh, getting intensivists to sign on for a study where they had their hands tied behind their back and couldn't adjust therapy if the patient needed something they thought was necessary. So, you know, that, that was, that, I thought that was a good way to do that. Uh, they did allow pressors by peripheral line in, in both both arms, especially because of um, um, the, because uh, the presser strategy that was used up front, uh, uh, many times they didn't have time to put in a central line, and so they allowed uh, uh, pressers uh, by peripheral line, which is something that's been debated for a long, long time, and, and we'll talk about that here as we talk about the outcomes. The primary outcome was death from any cause before discharge at, at day 90. They had uh, several secondary outcomes, including 28-day measures of uh, days free from ventilator use, days free from renal replacement therapy, days free from vasopressor use, days out of the ICU and days out of the hospital. So all important outcomes that as someone who works in an ICU, I will tell you these are all important outcomes that we'd really want to know. And if they found a difference between any of them, uh, would, would definitely have the ability to, to, to change outcomes. They did look at a, a number of safety uh, outcomes, including the initiation of mechanical ventilation, new onset arrhythmias, and complications related to peripheral and central venous catheter use. As far as statistics, uh, they estimated that uh, they wanted to take a look at an absolute between group difference of 4.5 percentage points in the instance of death before discharge home at day 90. Uh, they assumed that death would occur in 15% of patients in the liberal group and 10.5% in the restrictive group. So they estimated that they would need about 2,320 patients to have a 90% power at an overall two-site alpha level of 0.05. Um, and then they, in the study, they also incorporated pre-specified criteria for, for different groups. Um, so they did some pre-specified group analysis. They also had a, a data safety monitoring board that would allow them to stop the trial for efficacy or for futility in either group, which I, again, I think that's pretty standard. So, so before we get into you know, the, the, uh, the results of the study and all that, I do think it's pretty important to take a second and talk about this, this protocol because it's unfortunately a bit complicated, uh, but I want to try and, and, and kind of walk everybody through it because again, for the people working in ICU listening to, to this, uh, trying to imagine it in your heads, I think is, is kind of important. So first we're going to talk about the liberal fluid group. So this is, I think, 
what you would normally see and, and something tells me that that many uh, critical care clinicians are, are kind of doing already. So once they were determined to have a septic shock or, or suspected septic shock with a MAP less than 65, they then re received up to three liters of crystalloid. So I think the standard kind of 30 mil per kilogram bolus you, you, would, you would see. At that point, the liberal uh, fluid protocol was initiated. They halted all other maintenance fluids and gave another two, mil, two uh, liters of crystalloid infusion at randomization. Um, um, and uh, they actually wanted it infused over 180 minutes. So again, you know, fairly fast. Um, and of course, the, the clinicians could slow or slow that if they needed to for any patient, and then they'd monitor signs for fluid overload. Then they would do a, a clinical assessment and, and see if, if the patient needed more volume or, or some other intervention done. So after the fluid uh, was in, in, infused, they, add, they took a look for markers of perfusion. Was the MAP uh, below 65 or stock blood pressure less than 90? Was the lactate over four or increasing? Was there decreased urine output? Uh, was there tachycardia with a sinus rate greater than 110? Um, and a couple of other things. And they did include clinical assessments. So they didn't just look at numbers. They, they, they wanted clinicians to assess patients, which I think is a good thing. Thing. Um, if the answer to that question is no, if they did not meet any of the criteria for hypoperfusion, then uh, they basically just did nothing and re reassessed within one hour. If they did meet any of this criteria for uh, um, uh, hypoperfusion, they gave another bolus of 500 mils and then reassessed. And if after all this fluid, uh, they still uh, did, they still had criteria associated with hypoperfusion then they started vasopressors. So again, pretty close to what I think is done in, in quite a few uh, ICUs uh, around the country um, is, is, you know, multiple fluid boluses. And then if, if there's still signs of hyperperfusion, particularly MAPS less than 65, then they started uh, uh, vasopressor use. And you could get rescue vasor, vasopressor use if, if, you know, they had severe hypotension, uh, they had a rapidly increasing lactate. So you, you could give vasopressors at any time in this, in this, a protocol if there were signs of patients with patients rapidly deteriorating, basically. So that was the liberal uh, of, uh, fluid group. Now, what about the restricted fluid group? So again, the same sort of an inclusion criteria patients who had a, a low MAP um, after one, two, three liters, again, of crystalloids, then instead of getting a two liter bolus when entering the study, they basically stopped all bolus and maintenance fluids and then gave uh, uh, fluid boluses initially of 500 mils up to two liters of total fluid. So you might only get 500 mils up front instead of two liters up front. And, and they, that, that amount was was at the discretion of the clinical team um, without the criteria of rescue fluids being needed. Then after that, uh, they assessed the patient. Um, if the patient had a MAP less than 65 uh, or a systolic blood pressure less than 90, they went right to pressors. So again, that's a key difference here. Instead of giving more boluses, they went right to pressors and they started norepinephrine to achieve a MAP of, of greater than 65. And if that didn't work, a second presser was added early as well. Um, um, if, if they were, if they still had signs of hypoperfusion, if they did not have signs of hypoperfusion, they just continued to monitor the patient and continue to reassess. They did allow rescue uh, um, fluids uh, to be used, especially if after two early pressers that we could not get a map above 65, but also they were they allowed uh, 100, 500 mil boluses if patients had severe hypotension or signs again of, of, of rapid rapid decline, um, or if the patient uh, had significant tachycardia of greater than 130 beats per minute for over 15 minutes. So again, big differences is tons of fluids in the, in the liberal arm, much less fluids in the restrictive arm, and much earlier use of pressers in, in the restrictive arm. So again, I don't mean to, you know, to, to, to belabor 
deliver this, but I think it's really important to go over what they did in the study because I think that that's pretty key. So they did these two uh, uh, groups. What did they find in the study and, and, and uh, what were the results and uh, what, uh, what does our expert think about it? We're going to get into all that after this uh, message from our sponsor, CE Impact. Hi, this is Jen Moulton, founder of CE Impact. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review. We're growing, and the more followers and ratings we have, the more great content we can provide. We appreciate your support to help you connect your learning to practice. So we're back talking about the Clover study of looking at basically, you know, early vasopressor use and restricted fluid use in septic shock versus kind of what we do now, which is very liberal fluids up front and vasopressors kind of later on. Um, so we, we were talking about the outcome. As I mentioned before, they did uh, stratify the outcome by a number of things, age, gender, ethnic group, uh, uh, presence of end-stage renal disease, et cetera, et cetera. When all is said and done, uh, they they actually had uh, about 1,600 patients assigned, or, yeah, about, yeah, about 1,600 patients total, 780 patients assigned to the restrictive group, 781 assigned to the, to the liberal fluid group. Now, keep in mind, that means the study was underpowered some, so they, we do want to keep that in mind as, as, as we're looking at this. Uh, and the reason it was halted was that the Data Safety Monitoring Board basically halted the study for futility at the second interim analysis, owing to a lack of between group differences between the primary and secondary outcomes. So one of the things I've heard you know, about the study as well, you know, they're underpowered to show a difference, but, you know, basically, you know, the, there, there had to be interim statistical analyses and the Data Safety Monitoring Board took a look at this second uh, uh, analysis and went, even if every patient in the, in the liberal group uh, did better than the restricted group or vice versa, there was not going to be a statistically significant difference. So uh, while I get the argument that the study was un underpowered, um, I think that, that that's why you have data, data safety monitoring boards doing these kind of analyses to see, you know, are we putting patients uh, in studies for really no reason? And that's exactly what happened here. As far as characteristics, patients were over age 69. They had a mean SOFA score about three. So they were, they were fairly sick patients, um, and about 5% of them were on, on hemodialysis going into the study. So when we take a look at, at the uh, um, amount of fluid administered, it, it becomes very, very uh, uh, evident that there was a big, big difference. So over a 24-hour period, the restrictive fluid group um, actually got only 1,260 mils of fluid on, 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 in, on median. Um, that could go, it was as high as, as 2,200 mils, but as low as 500 mils. So basically, uh, uh, the median fluid intake was only about 1.2 liters, whereas in the liberal fluid group, um, it was 3,400. Mills. So, so again, almost three times the amount of fluid in the liberal fluid group compared to the restrictive fluid group, and the range actually went all the way up to five liters in these patients. So that ended up with a median difference of about 2.1 liters, as you might imagine. So that's not that surprising. Um, as far as vasopressin administer, administration to the first 24 hours, um, again, since this was an early vasopressin use in the restrictive fluid arm, about 60% of patients got vasopressin administration in the first 24 hours in the restricted group compared to only 37 0.2 with a mean difference of about 21.7. Um, um, and the time to randomization for first phase of pressing use was only 1.8 hours in the restrictive fluid group. So basically they started uh, vasopressors within the first 1.8 hours on average compared to about uh, 3.2 hours in, 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 in the liberal group. So again, showing very clearly uh, the difference in, in, in treatment approach. Um, 
um, that that in the restrictive fluid group they used far less fluids and used uh, uh, vasopressors far earlier and far longer or, or far more than than the liberal fluid group. So I think that's that's important to kind of go through as as we kind of go uh, as we kind of talk about that. So um, when it's all said and done, however, uh, the differences uh, were basically no difference between the two. So uh, death before discharge at day 90, which was the primary outcome, occurred in 14% of the restricted fluid group and 14.9% in, in the liberal fluid group. So uh, basically no difference, uh, or at least no statistically significant difference, and I would argue probably not, not much of a clinical difference between the two arms. So, so as far as outcome of, of death, it seemed to be pretty similar. Uh, but when we, when we turn to safety, and I think here's, here's the key on which this, this study turns, and, and probably not all, that, not all that surprising, that uh, patients in the restrictive fluid arm uh, uh, had uh, fewer serious side effects. Um, uh, pulmonary edema, for example, was, was, was lower in the restrictive fluid arm. The incidence of new uh, uh, need of, of mechanical ventilation was, was lower in the restrictive fluid arm, uh, uh, not, not by a ton, but, but definitely there. Um, and pretty much all the other uh, adverse effects of associated with fluid overload was less common in, in the uh, restrictive fluid arm compared to the liberal fluid arm. None, they didn't do statistics on really any of this stuff because, again, they were way underpowered to do it. But the numbers were virtually, uh, uh, the numbers for safety or efficacy were virtually identical. And definitely uh, things associated with pulmonary edema and fluid overload were, were, were much less, as you might imagine, in the uh, uh, restricted fluid group. Did not seem to have a statistically significant increase in uh, tachyarrhythmias, uh, which kind of surprised me. I, you would think with early, early use of, of uh, vasopressors, you would see a ton more tachyarrhythmias, and they didn't really do that. At, at, you know, actually, the numbers were fairly similar between the two. So, you know, that's kind of the results. The, the investigators basically said, you know, has suggested after the study was that, you know, using either a vasopressant dominant or fluid predominant approach resulted in very similar patient-centered outcomes um, and actually found that it was safer probably overall to use the restricted group uh, compared to, to the uh, uh, liberal fluid group. So I'm going to stop hearing, uh, talking about the study and again, uh, uh, say hello to, to Dr. Matt Trump, who's an intensivist uh, here at, at Methodist Hospital. And Matt, what do you think about all this? What, what do you think about the study, pros, cons? What, what do you think we should take away from this? Yeah, this this was a really well done study. And again, the, the authors should be commended for, for their work on this. I mean, this is a, a huge, huge N of patients, huge number of patients, lots of different centers. Took over four years, it looks like, for them yeah. to enroll patients and, and get to this point. So uh, yeah, kudos to the, to all the folks who worked on this. Um, so yeah, this, this is a great, I think the study overall was really well done. And, and, um, you know, there was looking at a lot of the supplementary data, which there's just a huge, yeah. huge amount, which, which is fascinating, but you know, that there was a high adherence to the protocol. So, so they were able to get their clinicians to buy in and, and stick to the protocol to, to really try to see if there was a difference in these two approaches. And, and it really, there wasn't, like you said, maybe some more adverse ev events and outcomes on the other side with the um, more fluid overload impacts that that, that can have. But um, what I think in general as a clinician is that this just highlights the importance of bedside evaluation in patients. Um, you know, we human beings are not textbooks and um, everybody responds to treatments differently. You know, when I go from room to room in the ICU, I, I go into one and I come up with a plan for them. I leave the room and then I, I uh, shift gears and I go to the next one because every patient's different. And so these, these data here help me 
uh, better refine my practice. And but I do think that the the importance of bedside evaluation is is uh, of the utmost importance. You know, we can we can try to have um, protocols in place that tell us exactly what to do every time, um, kind of guide us. You know, but but the important piece to this continues to be. Um, the, the clinician at the bedside, evaluating the patient, looking at their fluid status and making a determination. And so in executing that treatment plan. You know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. And uh, you know, the other, the other piece that is the um, the authors really emphasized and in, in encouraged their clinicians to use dynamic uh, measures of, of volume status and and that continues to be a really important feat, uh, important aspect of bedside practice is, is to look at your patients to see if they're actually going to respond to fluid to do some sort of measure that we know works, whether it's a pulse pressure variation when they're on the ventilator and have an arterial line, even easy things as a passive leg lift. Um, or if, if you're skilled enough and can do bedside echocardiogram to look at, at um, the heart function and, and all the all the parameters that we look at to see if, if, yeah, is that volume that we're thinking about giving the patient, is that going to help or should we just lean on the pressors a little bit more? So that's, um, I think, I think just the bedside, the bedside um, evaluation by us is it, that continues to, to be emphasized, I think, in, in the big take-home points from this. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I, you know, I, again, you know, the, the study doesn't necessarily suggest that, that there's this huge benefit to restrictive therapy. I, I, what I kind of took away from it was that, you know, something that not having worked with, with you and your partners for many years is, is you know, it seems like we're forever diuresing patients, you know, who've, you know, they, they've turned the corner, they're getting better, and we've done a good job resuscitating them, maybe almost too good job resuscitating them, and then, and then we end up, you know, having to diurese them and taking longer to get off the vent and stuff like that. Now, again, the study found more, more incidents of, of pulmonary edema, but there was actually no difference in getting people off the vent. So, they, you know, the numbers really weren't there to, to show that. So, I, you know, I, I guess, you know, my big take home from this was that it, at, it's at least as good to consider a restrictive strategy. And I wonder, and, and Matt, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, you know, because we use a kind of a milligram per kilogram load in, in patients that if, you know, if you were to get a patient who's, you know, say 150 kilograms, right? And so they, you know, they theoretically should get three, four, five liters of fluid um and uh you know on on and on top of that if you don't use you know something sophisticated like you said like bedside you know uh pocus or something along those lines it may be difficult to assess their their volume status without a whole bunch of you know without you know serial chest x-rays and stuff like that i wonder if you know if the groups like that may be the ones or groups who come in with chronic kidney disease on on dialysis who are, are going to have a difficult time basically you know getting rid of that fluid i, I wonder if we're going to self-select over the you know over time, you know, are these patients that we may want to consider the the upfront uh, um, present strategy as opposed to the upfront leader strategy? I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, and I I I agree that uh, that volume status, that clinical history picture, that's really uh, that's really going to help guide my treatment. So yeah, if I go see a patient and you know, they have all these problems that make them particularly vulnerable to having problems with fluid overload down the road. I'm going to think about starting the vasopressors a little bit earlier. So definitely, I think that this gives us the better uh, comfort with, with starting that approach. You know, the other, the other swing to the pendulum or the other side of the argument is, you know, that we've always said, and that I always learned was how can you give somebody vasopressors and expect them to work if you're intravascularly dry? Absolutely. And so, you know, and that's true, but, but 
how do you determine that? And that's to go to the bedside. So, um, you know, that's, that's, um, you know, fluid overload is a huge problem and it, it, it affects every single organ system. And yes, we have to give a lot of diuretics and deal with the consequences to that too. But I think it's just, again, patient centered care is the key here. Um, it, the patient centered care is the key. And, and yeah, if, if they have a bunch of things that are going on with them that are going to make that fluid, we give them a problem, then, uh, yeah, I'm going to hit that. Um, I'm going to have them think about using the pressors a little earlier. So for sure. Yeah. And I agree with that. And, and I, I totally agree with you that, that, um, you know, I, I protocolizing this is going to be challenging, I think, because, um, you know, even if you were to say, okay, I'm going to take this chart that was in the study, um, and just basically, you know, you know, set it, you know, set it in, in order set in our, in our electronic medical record so that, you know, when we're working, you know, when we, you know, admit a patient with septic shock, you can just check one of, okay, this patient gets a liberal thing. This goes, you know, you're right. I, I don't think that's going to be a possibility here because of the, of the nuances going on. And since they didn't show a clear benefit to one over another, I think that makes it even more imperative that, as you say, that you've really got to go to the bedside and, and, and take a look at the patient. And I, I agree with you. What I kind of walked away from was, was from this study was that in the end, you know, giving pressors earlier than later certainly isn't harmful. And, and they note that, 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 you know, they, that people tended to tolerate early pressors just as good as they did later ones. Uh, in the pharmacy world, we've always kind of been nervous about giving uh, uh, vasopressors again from peripheral lines. And they only found three cases of potential and potential vasopressor extravasation in 500 patients in, 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 in peripheral lines. And all three resolved out without any intervention and didn't have any residual clinical consequences. So, like, you know, again, I think that fear that, that, oh my goodness, we certainly can't give norepinephrine by a peripheral line is just not warranted. Now, I wouldn't probably leave somebody on, uh, on uh, norepinephrine for over 24 hours on it with peripheral line, and they didn't do that in the study. So, I mean, at some point, you're going to need a central line for a variety of reasons in these patients. But, but you know, the terror of giving uh, um, um, norepinephrine early just doesn't seem to be validated. And, and I think I, I do wonder if, if people start using a more restrictive approach, will we start seeing... Uh, norepinephrine use down in the ED more, you know, which we usually don't see, you know, usually we get them up to the ICU and then we start thinking about, okay, we better get a central line and then we better, we better get a, uh, you know, a, you know, assess them for intubation and all that other stuff. I, I think, I think we do a, a lot of that in the ICU. And I think that in the patients that, you know, you and your partners go down to take a look at, you know, and you're like, well, gee, you know, I, this patient seems to be pretty fluid, uh, has intervascularly uh, re repleted, looks to do okay. It's okay to order that norepinephrine, even if they don't have a central line in place. So that'll be, I think, very interesting as well. So any wrap up questions, uh, thoughts you have, Matt? No, I, I, um, I want to highlight you and, and your colleagues at our hospital, you know, you guys have always helped guide us on the, um, the whole central line. Do you need pressers issue? You've, we've got a really nice protocol in place and we are, I think pretty forward thinking in this, as far as do we have to subject the patient to the risk of having a line placed right away when, when we can give them pressers, as long as they have a really nice peripheral IV in place and, and, um, and, you know, they're on a low, low dose and we don't expect them to be on it that long. And so I, I just think that highlights the, um, the uh, collaboration that we have with our pharmacy colleagues, our nursing team and, and everybody to really just make everything we do as safe as possible for patients in the ICU and, um, and, and, and to, to be the right thing to know that it's, it's, it's going to help and not hurt them. So um, the other highlights to this, if, uh, if, 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 if I can move on, if, if you're course. okay with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Please. You know, um, th there was, 
with every study, there's always a, a you know, a, a dozen things we can get out of these that are always potentially hypothesis generating or just thought provoking, but, um, you know, they, they excluded surgery patients in this. And so, yes. um, anybody needed an operation, they did not include in this. And so I, I think that that's another key, uh, point to this study is to highlight for, for clinicians in the ICU is that if this is in patients who didn't have a surgical intervention need for their sepsis. And so that's when, in, and we always, in our unit, um, we have a mixed ICU there. So we, we are taking care of medical surgical patients, uh, having that overlap and collaboration with our surgeons all the time. And so it's, it's, uh, again, just important to keep that in mind that, that this is not surgical patients. And so that, that ends, that tends to be a different kind of, of physiology that can happen with our patients. And so, um, once they go into surgery, everything kind of changes, uh, significantly. So that's, that's important to highlight here too. You know, and you talked about too, some of the respiratory complications of the, of the excess fluid, the liberal group did have more use of high flow of nasal high flow, which suggests to me that, yeah, they probably dealt more with fluid overload issues in the lungs. And so, so that's really important highlight. And, but the other piece is, is resource use that, that we focus on is, is, uh, you know, our, our ICU is, a uh, we have struggles all the time with getting getting beds for people to get in there with oh, patients yeah. waiting or even waiting at outside facilities. And, and the liberal group did have less time in the ICU overall. So 8% of the patients, 8% less of the patients had time in the ICU. And so with, with the liberal group, so, or they had less, 8% less ICU time in the liberal group. So yes, you can resuscitate people, get them fluid up and they might not need the IC or might not need those pressors, but that again requires that bedside out evaluation. So absolutely. Absolutely. Um, those are, those are some other key highlights I got from this. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So yeah, like I said, uh, you know, fascinating study. My guess is, is we'll be debating uh, some of the pros and cons of this study for, for a while to come, but you know, in a, in a world where we don't often have really solid evidence to guide our therapies. And because again, good randomized control trial data is so hard to come by in the ICU. And certainly as the study points out, and most other studies point out, it's almost impossible to do in one hospital because it's just, there's no way you're going to see enough patients in a single hospital, no matter how big the hospital is uh, to, to really have enough to power to do a, to a really well done study. So, you know, I think again, the ArtsNet group, as I, as you point out earlier, did a really good job and, and, you know, the, the, there may not be another big study looking at this. And so, uh, you know, I think we have, well, we will be picking apart this study for, 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 for quite a while to come looking at the pros and cons. And as always, I'm always interested in what the surviving sepsis campaign uh, guideline group will do with this. Will they, will they, my guess is they'll probably say that either is a reasonable strategy, um, uh, just based on this study, but you know, it's it's always interesting. I've, I've learned over the years to not try and second guess them or try and figure out what they're going to say with their next uh, set of guidelines because a lot of times they, they they do something. I'm like, oh, I wouldn't have expected that. So interesting to see. So, yeah. well, Matt, thank you so much for, for for taking time to join us. We really appreciate it. Um, again, I'll probably call on you again uh, when we have a, a, an ICU study because I, I do appreciate your expertise and it's always been great to work with you over the years. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me again, and uh, it's a great podcast and. Um... I really enjoy uh, your breakdowns and all the great work that uh, the folks uh, with CE Impact do to help get the knowledge out to all the folks taking care of patients. So thank right. you. Thanks again, Matt. So that's it for for this uh, week's edition of, of Game Changers. We will see you next week, but until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We will see you next week. That's it for this week's episode of Game Changers. 
CE Impact members, don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode. If you aren't a member, join us at ceimpact.com. We'll talk to you next week for Game Changers Clinical Conversations.